It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Well, I've got to start with the biggest story of the day. How did Mike Pompeo lose 90 pounds? Have you seen these pictures? It doesn't even look like the guy. Well, the former Secretary of State tells all to the New York Post, saying, I started exercising every day. He had been almost 300, by the way. Not every day, but nearly every day, eating right. The weight just started to come off. He invested in a home gym in his basement with some dumbbells, an elliptical machine, and he let the New York Post photograph this. And I have two reactions to this. One, that's really quite a feat, and the uh, former Trump cabinet member is to be congratulated. And two is, he's running. He's running for something anyway. Nick Kristoff, the former New York Times columnist, Pulitzer Prize winner, who quit his job just a couple of months ago to run for governor of Oregon, has been knocked off the ballot. Uh, The Oregon Secretary of State ruling he doesn't uh, satisfy the residency requirement. In fact, the Oregon Secretary of State quoted as saying it wasn't even a close call. It doesn't even pass the smell test. Now, Kristoff is going to appeal. He says that he's always considered Oregon his home. He kept a house there. But uh, state officials point out he voted in New York as recently as 2020. He spent lots and lots of time outside the state. I think, you know, before you give up your New York Times column, maybe you ought to get this nailed down. On the other hand, you know, maybe he'll win the appeal and... I bet if he can't run, you know, the Times would probably take him back. Well, it's Friday, so I hope you have a good weekend coming up. This is the time that we make all our final changes to Media Buzz, which I hope you'll catch on Sunday morning. Now, you've heard a lot from me and everybody else in the media universe about January 6th, but now it's January 7th. So I'll get to that in a few minutes, but I want to lead off the podcast a little differently now that we have the the somber and controversial and polarizing events of yesterday behind us. So story number one, back to Omicron. But I want to start with Rochelle Walensky. I have been saying for months and months that I have almost never seen the head of a significant federal agency who is a worse communicator than Rochelle Walensky. Uh, You know, all the muddled and confusing and contradictory advice that comes from the Centers for Disease Control You know, she's the one who runs it. She apparently was a highly regarded infectious disease specialist from Boston, but who had never held a government job and no experience at this level doing what you need to do. And so today on the Today Show, she appeared and she said, we're going to continue to improve our communications. Now, translated from government speak, that means we've done a horrible job communicating. We are getting beat up. And now uh, I'm here to tell you we're going to try to do better, improve our communications. Um, and so what's fascinating to me is New York Times story is a whole piece about this, a whole piece in the New York Times about Walensky's communications problems. And two thoughts about this. One is this piece is overdue. Again, I've been saying this since last spring when the CDC was mucking around with like, well, you got to wear a mask outside even if you're vaccinated and all that stuff. Secondly, it's fascinating the way, although she's become a lightning rod, much the way that Anthony Fauci has become a lightning rod, President Biden doesn't get blamed here. Well, he's the guy in charge. He's the guy who appointed her. He's the guy who's supposed to make sure the administration has a consistent message. And that's the way, you know, if, all, if the exact same set of facts existed under Donald Trump, it would be Trump is out of control. Trump can't even, you know, get the CDC to be on the same page. Trump is totally botching this. 
with Biden, the, the media criticism, not always, but tends to get deflected to other people. So uh, news organizations don't have to say that he's responsible for the mess. Anyway, let me pick up a little bit from this time story. Uh, it, it starts out by talking about her latest fiasco, in my view, you know, arbitrarily cutting the recommended isolation time if you get COVID from 10 days to five days, clearly. Uh, in an effort to keep the economy humming, keep businesses open, keep planes flying, because so many workers have been affected, infected, I should say, by Omicron. Uh, and then it was like, well, maybe we went too soon. Maybe we should say, no, you need a negative test first. So Walensky briefed other top Biden health officials on her proposal so they would be on the same page, according to sources. It did not work out that way, surprise. Uh, Fauci and the Surgeon General Vivek Murthy Vivek Murthy, uh, were concerned that the new guidance didn't urge people to get a negative COVID test before ending their isolation. And they both went on national television and took issue with what Walensky was saying, saying they expected the CDC to clarify its advice. And uh, on Wednesday, nine days after the new CDC guidance, the agency was still trying to explain itself. CNN reporter uh, asked a question in the White House briefing to Walensky, how do you expect people to keep track of what they can and can't do? And it's true. And by the way, I, I just think the CDC has become irrelevant because the average person is going to decide how long he or she feels she needs, he or she needs to be quarantined and uh, decides whether to get a negative test or not before going back to work, going back uh, to school, whatever it is. Except you can't get the test, and that's a whole other Biden administration fiasco that I think he is directly responsible for and belatedly acknowledged they should have gotten started months earlier. And these 500 million tests, I read a piece today, oh, they're finalizing the contracts. Don't bother me with that. Tell me when the tests are actually being sent out and ordinary people can get them. Uh, President Biden came into office vowing to restore public trust in the CDC after the Trump White House had tied the agency's hands. Uh, yet, Biden has presided over a series of messaging failures that have followed a familiar pattern. With Dr. Walensky and her team, says the Times, making what experts say are largely sound decisions, but fumbling and communicating them to America. So two things there. Biden has presided over. Not that it's his fault. He just happens to be the president of the United States. He's just presided over it. And there's nothing wrong with the CDC's decisions. It's just a PR problem. But actually, some of these decisions are really questionable. Um, a piece goes on to say that um, Walensky's critics say the CDC's recommendations are sometimes so confusing or abruptly modified that they seem more like drafts than fully vetted proclamations. And I, I do get the notion that, um, you know, you got to move quickly and you got to make quick judgment calls. And that is challenging. Now, one of the problems, according to the Times, is that nobody's resolving these interagency differences. Javier Becerra, the health secretary, HHS, uh, doesn't settle these disputes. And by the way, he's almost never out there. Uh, I mean, he's the guy who runs the biggest federal health department, and he's almost never out there as a spokesman on anything related to COVID. Uh, Fauci also, if I have one criticism of Anthony Fauci, I think he gets beat up on way too much. But on the other hand, he's become a lightning rod, particularly on the right. It's that he, when he takes questions from reporters or does these uh, television interviews, he, he, says, he says that we can't rule that out or we're looking at it. Then the media kind of hype that into White House may do X. And then he's in the position of saying, well, never, I never said that. So one instance happened late last month. Uh, when the question became, would there be a vaccine requirement for getting on domestic flights? 
And Fauci said it should be seriously considered. The White House got hit with a whole bunch of questions. Later, Fauci said, well, the mandate was unlikely. Well, you can't open the door to this sort of thing uh, in this media environment. And given the magnitude of the pandemic and especially the Omicron surge, we're up to an average of about 600,000 new cases a day. The number of daily deaths has crept up to about 1,400 more than before, but certainly not keeping pace, you know, underscoring that these are relatively mild infections. But anyway, it's a mess. Uh, a lot of people share responsibility. Rochelle Walensky is number one in my view. You know, I don't usually say this, but if I was running the agency and I, I, if I had confidence in her, I would keep her. But I would say, you stay off TV. We're going to have the chief medical spokesman be whoever. Maybe it's not Fauci. Maybe it's some brilliant spokesperson for the CDC who you could install there who was a good communicator, who knew how to deal with reporters, who knew how to cut through uh, the scientific jargon. But that doesn't seem to be happening. All right, story number two. Peace and National Review by Charles W. Cook has to do with a theme I've been talking about in recent days, which is learning to live with COVID, the normalizing of COVID, the idea that we cannot, in the United States of America, two years in, be in a perpetual state of emergency. So, in National Review, Cook chooses to beat up on Chris Eliza of CNN, old-time friend and colleague of mine, and he picks up on something Eliza recently said. Eliza lamented that throughout the pandemic, and here he's quoting Chris, societally, we unknowingly turned having COVID into some sort of judgment on your character. We need to recognize that getting COVID isn't a moral failing. It's a super infectious disease that you can protect against, sure, but can't guarantee you won't get it. Now, doesn't seem to be anything wrong with Solicit saying that, but here's um, the National Review take. Unknowingly, we need to recognize societally, does Chris Silva live in a sensory deprivation tank? There's been nothing unknowing, says Charles Cook, about the implication that catching COVID is evidence of a moral failing. It has been the core he says, of the progressive response to the disease. We see it every time that someone who disagrees with the maximalist approach to lockdowns, restrictions, or mandates is labeled a covid We see it every time the governor of Florida is described stupidly as death Santis, or the governor of Texas is accused of belonging to a death cult, or any politician or writer with a different calculus than Fauci is charged with wanting to kill grandma. I don't think I've seen too many references to that. We see it insinuated by figures such as uh, New York Times' Paul Krugman, who compared the states experiencing a seasonal surge to the slaveholding Confederacy. I missed that particular reference. Anyway, uh, Charles Cook goes on to say that it's basically the media and the liberals, in his conservative view, that have, that have engaged in COVID shaming. He doesn't use that phrase, but I will. Uh, we see it each time a Republican celebrity announces that he has the virus and is swiftly blamed for his own illness. We do see that sometimes when that person is a prominent anti-vaxxer, and I never blame anybody. I mean, I'm always sympathetic to anybody who gets this disease. Um, But it's not that Cook doesn't have a point. Um, It's what Nicole Wallace means when she complains that despite being a Fauci groupie, that's her phrase, and a thrice-vaccinated mask adherent who buys KN95 masks by the caseload, she's beginning to sense that she won't be able to outrun Omicron. And here's his final point. When Solicitor says we need to recognize, what he should mean is we need to apologize. 
There's one reason and one reason alone that uh, Saliza and his ilk, okay, this is a pretty loaded piece. Um, all right, picking up with the ilk. That Saliza and his ilk are running away from the judgment of God assumption that has marked the press's coverage of COVID. Now that they've contracted COVID themselves en masse, the ruse has become unsustainable. It's one thing to it's one thing to point at the hicks down south and include their coughing because they have the wrong politics. It's quite another to reckon with what infection must mean when your own city is inundated. It's different when the BuzzFeed Christmas party, rather than the spring break at the lake of the Ozarks, becomes the super spreader event of the season. And here's a kind of a related piece in a way in the Atlantic uh, by a woman who lives in Cleveland named Angie Schmidt. And she says she's been a lifelong Democrat, but now she feels very disaffected from her party because of COVID. She said, because of what my family went through during the pandemic, I feel adrift from my tribe and disgusted with both parties. Um, So it turns out that the local Democratic mayor and council uh, shut down schools in 2020 when the pandemic hit. And she said she knew she wouldn't be able to work full time because she had a son who was then five and a daughter who was then three at home. She says, I was, look, I was accepting of short term school closures, but my faith in the system deteriorated as the weeks and months of remote learning dragged on. Um, despite the wonderful teacher's efforts, online kindergarten is about as ridiculous as it sounds. I remember logging onto a gym class when my son was the only student present. It was embarrassing. Present, I should say. It was embarrassing. Finally, when the Cleveland schools, schools reopened uh, this past March under pressure from Republican Governor Mike DeWine, they chose a hybrid model, which meant my son could only enter the building two days a week. Well, then her whole family got COVID, so that was an ordeal for her. Uh, and finally, she had enough. With about two months left in the academic year, we found a charter school that was open for full-time in-person instruction. It was difficult to give up on our public school, but our trust was broken. And she goes on to say that compounding my fury, this this will resonate, uh, was a complete lack of sympathy or outright hostility from my own team, in quotes. Democrats have been eager to style themselves as the ones that take the virus seriously, which is shorthand, at least in the bluest cities and states, for endorsing the most extreme intervention. By questioning the wisdom of school closures and taking our child out of public schools, I found myself going against the party line. And when I tried to speak out on social media, I was shouted down and abused, accused of being a Trumper who didn't care if teachers died. Uh, Wow. That's pretty, you know, and look, the reason I read this at some length is because lots and lots and lots of parents, and I don't see this as solely a problem of Democratic mayors and governors, but, you know, the, the whole thing, I mean, we're just beginning to grapple with how hard it hit not just working parents, but students who miss so much school. And now, you know, right now we're in at least a mini phase where a number of schools have gone to virtual learning, including in the Washington area, uh, compounded by some snow days here at least. Um, And it's not clear, you know, when they'll come back. Maybe it's next week. Maybe it's the end of January. Um, You know, we've learned in the past that when when they say it's just a few days, often that's not the case. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. Let's get to the events of yesterday, January 6th. 2022. So, uh, blistering speech by Joe Biden 
going after Donald Trump. And don't give me any of this like, oh, he didn't mention his name. He, he referred to the former president 16 times. He intended to do that. He intended to say, I've had enough. This is the day. He's standing in the rotunda of the Capitol with all the statues uh, that we're going to hold Trump accountable. And of course, Trump hit back uh, with a lot of uh, very strong language. Biden just trying to detract from being a failure. Uh, Biden is perpetuating the big lie. The big lie in Trump's view is November 3rd, not January 6th course, um, as I said, and I have a whole column today about this, you know, journalists, leaving aside the opinion journalists, the ones who are pro-Trump, the ones who are anti-Trump, the ones who are pro-Biden, the ones who are anti-Biden, you know, the ones who are trying at least to do their jobs have to stick to the facts. And the fact is Donald Trump is wrong. He has no proof of any widespread fraud. His own Justice Department, all the investigations, you know the whole litany. And so this became another day uh, of political polarization and media polarization. So here's a New York Times take. For most of his first year in office, President Biden bet he could move the country past the divisiveness of his predecessor by restoring a sense of normalcy to the White House and ignoring the former guy. It didn't work. So yesterday, Biden put aside his hopes of no longer having to engage directly with Donald Trump and went aggressively at him, using an impassioned speech at the Capitol to make clear the urgent necessity of confronting Trump and Trumpism. Yeah, the piece quotes part of Biden's speech. We saw with our own eyes as rioters menaced these halls, threatening the life of the Speaker of the House, literally electing, erecting gallows to hang the vice president. What did we not see, Biden said? We didn't see a former president who had just rallied the mob to attack, sitting in the private dining room off the Oval Office in the White House, watching it all on television and doing nothing for hours as police were assaulted, lives at risk, the nation's capital under siege. Says the Times, the president's speech tacitly acknowledged that his predecessor, far from fading away, remains the most potent force in Republican politics and a credible rival in 2024. That's putting it mildly. And for Biden, um, it signaled his willingness to confront more directly the challenges Trump poses to Democratic values at home. Um, the approach has its risks, is interesting not least uh, in providing Trump with better opportunities to hit Biden with broadsides of his own. An opening Trump seized on Thursday with a series of angry statements accusing the president of supporting open borders, unconstitutional mandates, and corrupt elections. Well, first of all, what's fascinating to me is, and look, I, I understand, you know, if Trump puts out statements talking about the big lie, the stolen election, and all that, that most of the mainstream media are reluctant to cover that. But, I mean, basically even though one was putting out statements and one is the incumbent president of the United States giving a speech at the Capitol, you know, very, you pick up the papers today and you watch the coverage on most of the channels yesterday, very little oxygen was given to Donald Trump's side. And yet, on one level, and I, I have no problem with saying, well, he can't prove this and this is uh, uh, an allegation that's not supported. But on one level, since, as the Times acknowledges, he dominates Republican politics, is the likely nominee in 2024 if he runs, there is a huge imbalance here, maybe playing into the hands of those who say, you know what, Trump doesn't deserve all his coverage. The Times goes on to say that the Biden speech may have been a one-off, but, you know, when you say, well, he shouldn't have uh, attacked Trump because this elevates Trump and gives him an opportunity to punch back, Trump doesn't need that. He, he obviously is already... Uh, this incredibly powerful figure within the GOP. Okay, Washington Post had a behind-the-scenes piece 
Uh, Biden and his aides largely refused to talk about Trump or react to him for many, many months. Here's the, my, my very point. Calculating that doing so might provoke Trump and risk elevating his standards, elevating his standing and giving him and his rhetoric more media attention than they already have. Well, it's true. That was a complete and total failure. And so Biden decided to take him on. The speech was written in part or with the help of John Meacham, the historian, the former Newsweek editor, the publisher who... Um, Gave up his MSNBC contributor after it was disclosed that, uh, you know, old friend of mine, after disclosed that he was privately helping Joe Biden. Uh, Peace in Politico, you know, when you think about two vice presidents being threatened a year ago, Vice President Kamala Harris was evacuated from the DNC offices by her Secret Service unit on January 6th last year after that pipe bomb was discovered nearby, according to a source. Um... Now, was that pipe bomb just aimed at Democrats? It never went off, fortunately. Was it aimed at at Kamala Harris? Did anyone know she was there, or is that giving them too much credit? But, you know, at the same time the mob is chanting, hang Mike Pence and Erexa Gallows, the vice president-elect had to be spirited to safety by the Secret Service. Another really weird moment yesterday. Dick Cheney along with his daughter Liz, on the floor of the House, and Democrats were lining up to shake his hand. Cheney said he was there to support Liz, and he said he went after the GOP leadership. It's not a leadership that resembles any of the folks I knew when I was here for 10 years. Remember, Cheney is a former congressman before he became uh, defense secretary, before he became vice president of the United States. You have to look back to the Bush administration and remember what, as the Washington Post says, a political boogeyman Dick Cheney was. I mean, he was held responsible for the Iraq War, uh, for many of the techniques of war, uh, including what what many described as torture, waterboarding. He was seen as pushing George W. Bush into war. Um, And in the first term, because Cheney had this foreign policy experience and Bush had only been, I mean, president's son, but he had only been the governor of Texas, um, Bush did rely heavily on Cheney. And then he it was uh, the, coming from Halliburton. Uh, here's an interesting thing. In 2007, uh, he got into it with Nancy Pelosi. Cheney said if Pelosi was successful at present, preventing uh, a troop increase in Iraq, this was during the Bush surge that eventually took place and had some limited success, it would validate the al-Qaeda strategy. Pelosi demanded an apology, saying Cheney had questioned her patriotism. Cheney said he did not and he would not apologize. There was another incident where on the uh, up on the hill, he told Democratic Senator Pat Leahy to F off. So this is a guy who was despised. And yet, um, now, because his daughter is on the January 6th committee and because he showed up, there were no other Republicans there. I think they were the only two in the House chamber. Uh, strange new respect, as we say in the media, from some Democrats for former Vice President Cheney. And by the way, Ted Cruz, in talking about January 6th, said it had been a terrorist attack. Then he went on Tucker Carlson show and completely walked it back. Uh, he had described it as a violent terrorist attack on the Capitol. That was his quote. But the senator now said, look, that was sloppy of me. It was frankly dumb of me to make those comments. Um, Tucker Carlson said his explanations weren't making any sense. You told that lie on purpose. I'm wondering why you did, Tucker said. 
what I was referring to, says Ted Cruz, was the limited number of people who engaged in violent attacks against police officers. I think you and I both agree that if you assault a police officer, you should go to jail. I wasn't saying millions of patriots across the country supporting Trump are terrorists. Hmm, okay. Uh, let's get to number four here. Uh, David Brooks, uh, moderately conservative column, columnist in the New York Times, says when it comes to elections, Republicans are a, pack, a bunch of liars. But Democrats are screwing up. He says Democrats live in their own insular echo chamber. And so now that they've turned their attention to voting rights, uh, the Democrats, uh, while we do have a problem with Republican efforts at the state level to overturn votes that have already been counted, potentially in future elections, the Democrats come up with this voting rights bill that uh, are sprawling measures covering everything from mail-in ballots to campaign finance. They basically include every idea that's been on activist agendas for years. These bills are hard to explain and hard to pass, says Brooks. By catering to D.C. interest groups, Democrats have spent a year distracting themselves from the emergency right in front of us. It's interesting that he would break uh, with the Dems on this. Maybe the best way to repulse a populist uprising is not by firing up all your allies in the Northwest Quadrant of Washington, D.C. And he says, it's a little weird to be arguing that in order to save democracy, we have to take power away from local elected officials. Well, I'm going to close here, number five, with a kind of a sports section. There's more and more sports news beyond what happens on the field, on the court. Uh, So I've told you yesterday, you've probably heard about, you know, the number one tennis player in the world, Novak Djokovic. Djokovic, um, and I say this as a guy who you know, kind of likes Djokovic's hard-nosed style of playing, but this is now an international incident. So the backstory is the Australian Open says, okay, we'll give you a medical exemption. You don't have to be vaccinated. You can come and play in the Grand Slam tournament. He shows up. The Australian government goes nuts, uh, refuses to give him a visa, and rather than getting on a plane and going home, uh, Djokovic tries to appeal. Meanwhile, he shuffled off to a special detention hotel, because he's unvaccinated. And now Serbian officials, he's from Serbia, are making this into an international incident. Australia said, look, we're not letting him in and that's it. Uh, They canceled his visa, or at least the provisional one that he had. So now here is the Home Affairs Minister of of Australia telling the Australian Broadcasting Corp, Mr. Djokovic is not being held captive in Australia. He's free to leave at any time he chooses to do so. And we'll actually facilitate that. That came after a Serbian official uh, ratcheted up the rhetoric, claiming that Djokovic had been lured to Australia, only to be the target of a witch hunt. We ever heard that phrase before. And demanding that he be moved to better accommodations. They don't like the hotel. Here's the quote from the Serbian Foreign Ministry. Novak Djokovic is not a criminal, terrorist, nor illegal immigrant but he has been treated as such by the Australian authorities, which understandably triggers the indignation of his supporters and Serbian citizens. What's going to happen next? They're going to pull their ambassadors? Um, Look, I understand the Serbian government being outraged, etc., but, you know, the primary responsibility here lies with Djokovic. He did publicly say he'd gotten a medical exemption, but why? Why should he, if he wants to make the personal decision not to be vaccinated, get to go play in this tournament when others can't. Why? Because he's one of the richest and famous, most famous tennis players on the planet. It's like all these other people in the NFL and the NBA who say, I don't want to get the vax. Fine, then don't play. 
if that's against the rules of your league. And Djokovic tried to do an end run with the help of the Australian Open, and the government there said, we're not having this. He's not coming. You know, maybe he doesn't get great room service at this hotel, but he is free to leave. Uh, it's, I'm sorry to see it come to this, but I do think, uh, as this turns into a global pissing match, that we should keep in mind that the decision to do this lies squarely on the shoulders of Djokovic. And in a related matter, you may remember if you listened yesterday, I hope you listen every day here, a sports writer in Chicago named Hub Arkush got a whole lot of media attention for going against uh, Aaron Rodgers, the Green Bay Packers quarterback who misled his team and the public into believing he got the vaccination. He hadn't gotten the vaccination. He ended up getting suspended for a game or two that hurt his team. He probably is on track to become the, the National Football League's most valuable player. Arkush is one of the 50 sports writers designated by the AP to vote on that. And he went public and said, you know what, he may be a great player, but I'm not, I'm not voting for him or I didn't vote for him because he's a jerk and a bad guy, given the way he conducted himself. Well, here comes the apology from Mr. Arkush. So in case you haven't heard, I've spent the better part of the last 24 hours making a pretty nasty mess. I made a terrible mistake. It was completely my fault. There was no one else to blame, and I am here to try to apologize. I own this, and I couldn't be more sorry. He's just getting warmed up. Okay. Uh, Arkush says, there is no more respected bastion of journalism in the world than the Associated Press, and few greater honors in my business than being chosen one of the 50 members of the panel that selects the all-pro teams and the MVPs and so on. It has been my privilege to be a member of that team, and I violated a trust. His marching orders are to make the best judgment he can and then not discuss his vote publicly until after the awards has been announced. But he shot off his mouth. He couldn't resist. He was doing some kind of interview. I couldn't possibly be more sorry for joining the conversation at all and some of the childish things I said about Aaron Rodgers. Uh, And that's put pressure on his colleagues. And finally, he says to Aaron Rodgers, you are one of the greatest players of this generation and one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. Whether or not you are this year's MVP is up to the 50-member panel. Not me, although he does get a vote. So I'd say that's a pretty full-throated apology, a pretty embarrassing walk back. Uh, now, again, he's not quite saying I shouldn't have said it in terms of the substance, although he does now say it was childish. He's saying he violated the rule. You know, if you, if you agree to serve on this panel, you're not supposed to be a blowhard and say, here's how I voted before the award, because it mars the whole thing. It brought him a lot of publicity, but apparently a lot of publicity that he does not enjoy. Well, hope you have a good weekend coming up. Uh, Apple iTunes, as I always say, is a good place to subscribe to this podcast. And we hope you watch Media Buzz on Fox Sunday morning, 11 Eastern. We'll do a lot of COVID, January 6th, big tech uh, versus conservatives, and lots of other stuff. We're back here Monday with more BuzzFeed. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.